Today, we are sometimes inclined to throw the term hero around, well, pretty loosely. What exactly is a hero? Or the female equivalent, a heroine? Well, depending on a given person's view, they can be anything from a child's toy action figure to the recipient of a Congressional Medal of Honor. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. The word hero has had a rather broad and non-exact application in our contemporary culture. For example, a decade back, we spoke glibly of guitar heroes in relation to video games. But so too, we applied the term to those who potentially rushed to their demise to save others. The phrase first responders has subsequently become synonymous with heroes. Classically, the term stems from Greek, meaning one who protects or defends. Virginia Beach police say the gunman who killed a dozen people appeared to have no specific targets. We begin with CTM national correspondent Jerika Duncan, who's been talking with survivors in Virginia Beach. Jerika, what do they say about their escape? One of the victims, Ryan Keith Cox, who his co-workers say was known as Keith, is being credited with saving seven lives by ushering his colleagues into a safe office space before the gunman could strike again. Hero meaning one who protects or defends, certainly suitable in the aforementioned example. By the middle of the 20th century, the term was routinely applied to a cavalcade of characters developed by Marvel and DC comic publishers. Indeed, Cape Crusaders abounded. The Adventures of Superman. Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings at a single bound. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. It's Superman. Yes, it's Superman. Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman, who can change the course of mighty rivers, bend steel in his bare hands, and who, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights a never-ending battle for truth justice, and the American way. Supermen and superwomen around us may not have the opportunity to demonstrate exceptional valor, but may in fact plod on unnoticed in seemingly uneventful lives. All the while, they are quietly protecting, defending, and inspiring those about them. You see, Almost anyone can be a hero to at least someone. I can't stand to fly. I'm not that naive. I'm just out to find. I'm happy to welcome to Watching America Dr. Elizabeth Zoboda. She is a science writer who lives in San Jose, California, and writes for Psychology Today. Her latest book is entitled What Makes a Hero and The Life Heroic, How to Unleash Your Most Amazing Self. Now, I must begin by asking you, may I call you Elizabeth? Yes, of course. I, I've been called all sorts of different things, but Elizabeth is probably the default. <laughs> well, I think we all have at various times. Um, Elizabeth, I, w- I want to ask you, if you don't mind, what caused you to take uh, a significant interest in heroes in the first place? Yeah, long and winding journey. Uh, If you had asked me at age 10, if this would be the subject area I would end up delving into, I would have told you no way. But I actually had a lot of people in my class who were Jewish, who were related to or, or knew people who had died in the Holocaust. And I became sort of an amateur historian of the Holocaust due, due to that personal connection. And I started thinking more and more about the problem of great evil in the world, you know, where does it come from, Um, you know, how to combat it. And one of the things through all this reading that gave me hope 
was that even with all the people who were watching by and doing nothing, there were some people who were willing to reach out who were rescuers, who actually saved people from being killed, even at great risk to their own lives. And so those would be the heroes. So over the years, I grew to focus more and more on those people, what makes them tick, what motivates them, what differentiates them from everybody else when it's much easier to just sit back uh, and, and do nothing. And then there was sort of a confluence of events. I heard about at Stanford University, which is close to me, uh, there was something called the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, which was just opening up, uh, had been funded by the Dalai Lama, so there was a little bit of buzz about it. And then the famous psychologist, Phil Zimbardo, was starting a new nonprofit called the Heroic Imagination Project. As I understand it, Dr. Zimbardo started out with the absolute opposite of heroism. He started out with studying sadistic behavior under certain circumstances, whereby he had students who were given the opportunity to behave supposedly sadistically to others and would nonetheless follow through with it. And now we have an inversion of that with being heroes and altruistic. How did that come about? Yeah, I I think there is a commonality there, though. So Dr. Zimbardo carried out what has become an infamous experiment called the Stanford Prison Experiment, where he randomly assigned, I think it was 12 normal college students to be prisoners in the simulation and another 12 to be guards. And the plan was that for two weeks, he was just going to carry the simulation out, see what happened. But what happened after only a couple of days was that the guards began behaving so sadistically toward the prisoners that Dr. Zimbardo actually had to cut the experiment short. And one of the things that he was able to conclude, though, from that brief experiment is that situational factors are very important in determining how we're going to behave. So, for instance, if you have a superior or a supervisor, or if you have internalized the surrounding attitude that behaving sadistically is going to be accepted or okay, you may consciously or unconsciously follow that lead. So it's not, in other words, it's not just whether we're a good person or a bad person, which are two simplistic categories to begin with, but it's also who we're surrounded by, the social norms of our environment, and those things can vary for better or for worse. So just as uh, during the prison experiment, the social norms were very toxic, uh, you can also foster an environment where the social norms are going to be very conducive to people helping each other out, people even rising to the level of behaving heroically. So I think Dr. Zimbardo often sees it as two sides of the same coin. Well, if you can induce people to behave as their worst selves under some conditions, well, couldn't you also induce them to behave as their best selves under better conditions? So is heroism simply an issue of environment and circumstance? Um, I don't think it's simple enough to say it's just environment. We know that humans do have some inborn tendencies toward selflessness. We know, for instance, that even toddlers will almost reflexively reach up to pick something up that a researcher has dropped and give it back to them, which they they really don't have to do. But, um, you know, humans are a very social species. And to some extent, we are programmed to be helpers. If we're part of a strong collective, that's actually going to improve our survival prospects to behave selflessly. But on the other hand, we also have this very important factor of environment and of individual choice, which is the thing that I like to emphasize. So even though we may have some inborn traits that make us selfless to a certain extent, it's up to us to find the opportunities to put that inclination into practice. And obviously, some of us have become better at doing that than others. So I really like to emphasize the role of individual agency in in this process of sort of deciding to embark on that hero's journey for yourself. I want to go back a little bit with something perhaps I should have established in the beginning. What is a hero? The reason I ask this is I think we sometimes ascribe the word hero rather easily. Are we using the word hero in a slipshod fashion without really deciding the merits of it, that term? 
Yes, I do think that's something that happens at times. And, you know, in some senses, our definition of heroism is too broad. And in in other instances, I I think it's too narrow. It's too broad, as you said, because sometimes we say, oh, anyone that we look up to is a hero. We kind of throw that term around. But I think it's also too narrow in that we think that in order to become heroes ourselves, we have to have some almost superhuman quality to us that we have to be born a certain way. So part of what my book argues for is that we need to broaden our idea of what constitutes heroism and that it's not just these death-defying feats, but also acts of everyday heroism, sort of day-in, day-out selflessness added together, those days can lead up to a heroic life. The definition that heroism researchers have started using is essentially that a hero is someone who takes the risk to help somebody else without an expectation of reward. So I think that's sort of a good all-purpose definition and is valid across many, many different realms in life. As a screenwriter, I tell my students that if you want to have a compelling hero, that hero must not want to be a hero. The reluctant hero, a concept in, uh, investigated by Joseph Campbell and Christopher Vogler and others who have studied storytelling and narrative. Isn't that true in real life? I mean, we don't really want to follow somebody who says, I'm a hero, I'm a Jack Rabbit, gonna get it, hero. <laughs> There's something distasteful about that, is there not? Yes, I I think it's absolutely true. And what I find is that the more people who I talk to, who I consider real-life heroes who have truly done astonishing things, almost to a person, none of them will describe themselves as heroic. They will say, I was just doing, you know, what seemed to be the next logical thing in the situation or the thing that I hoped somebody else would do for me or just the only human thing, like that they felt it, it was their only choice, that they had to do this heroic thing in order to be a decent person. Now, in your book, you have some fascinating uh, anecdotes about uh, people exhibiting unexpected heroism. Uh, an example would be the story of Dave, Dave Hartsock. Uh, would you mind sharing that with the audience? Yes, absolutely. So Dave Hartsock, who I was fortunate enough to be able to meet in person while I was writing my book, um, he was a skydiving instructor and he did what's called tandem dives with his students, where uh, the student and the teacher are basically strapped together when they do a dive. And so one day he was doing a dive with a first-time skydiver who was also a grandma. Uh, her name was Shirley Dagger. She was a little bit nervous, and you know, Dave reassured her, whatever happens, don't worry, I'm going to make sure that you're safe. Well, things very quickly went south, So they did their dive, and at a certain point, um, Dave would try to activate the primary parachute that would slow them down so that they would soar, you know, slowly back to Earth. But the primary parachute failed, and then I believe the backup parachute also failed because it had gotten tangled up uh, with the primary parachute. So Dave knew that this was a really bad scenario. They, They were just plummeting toward the ground, and he didn't really have a good way to slow them down. And at the last second before they hit, um, Dave made a really critical decision was that he rotated his body so that he was directly underneath Shirley, knowing that he was going to put himself in danger, mortal danger possibly, but that he was also going to be able to cushion Shirley's fall so that she could avoid injury as much as possible. And so boom, they hit the earth and, Dave's calculation turned out to be right in that Shirley escaped with some injuries, but certainly wasn't hurt as badly as she could have been. Unfortunately, Dave paid a very high price himself. He ended up uh, paralyzed as a result of the incident. But when you talk to him today, you, you know, I asked him, would you make that decision to protect Shirley over again, knowing even what was going to happen to you? And he did not hesitate one bit. He said, you know, I couldn't have lived with myself if I had made any other decision. And I'm so glad that I was able to serve my student in that way. That was just, you know, the kind of instructor that I wanted to be. And I'm glad I was able to to go up to that challenge. 
what was the result for for Shirley uh, after this is, uh, had occurred? I mean, what, how did her life go on? And, and being the recipient of such a sacrificial action, how has she looked at life since then herself? Yeah, I, I got to meet Shirley in real life too. And in fact, I had the incredible experience of being in the same room with both Dave and Shirley at the same time. And, you know, whenever Shirley is in the room with Dave, you can tell that her emotions are starting to brim over. She just has so much gratitude for this man who saved her life, really, and especially knowing that he paid such a steep price. Um, I I think she has an enhanced sense of gratitude for her life and her family from, from day to day, and she's trying to take that gift that Dave gave her and pass it on to whoever she can. They're both just remarkable people. Now, the full title of your book, What Makes a Hero, has the following that uh, occurs later, The Surprising Signs of Selflessness. Now, you were very interested by the behavioral economist Paul Zak, who did research to say that actually selflessness has a favorable response within the human body. Yes, um, we know that on a number of different levels that when we are of service to others, that there are these health benefits that we reap as a result. Some studies have shown that people who are involved in volunteer work to a significant degree actually live longer, enjoy a feeling of well-being that the researcher Alan Lux has called the helper's high So there are all these benefits that we get out of it, not just on a mental health level, but also on a physical health level. It's actually very selfish in a way to be selfless. We should just see it as a win-win type of scenario that what we do for others, we truly do for ourselves. And of course, that's the sentiment that you see echoing through the ancient texts, and it's true right up to today. Can altruism and goodness be taught? Is it, is it catching? If one, if we have a, a, an, an environment where one person takes an altruistic good action and others observe it, is it contagious to any degree? Yes. Well, we have seen in psychological studies that when one person is willing to take an action that's different than that of the rest of the group, uh, others are more likely to follow. The sticking point seems to be that very few people want to be the first one to do something different or something that makes them stand out or differ socially. So if you can take on the mission of, as Dr. Zimbardo likes to put it, being the first and, and knowing that by setting that example of selflessness or even of heroism that other people are going to follow in your stead, um, that can be something that can uh, t- take you forward and increase the chances that you're going to be able to intervene the way you would want to intervene in situations where people need help or where immediate assistance is called for. There would seem to be two different scenarios by which people respond. One is impulse. Now, we have examples of this when we hear at various times in various cities with public transit. About every two years, you hear the story of somebody who has a child that falls on the track of the subway and somebody, a bystander, jumps down just before a oncoming uh, train comes and will grab the child and then somehow manages to get back on the platform again. There is no time to really calculate that. It's instinct, is it not, at that point? Yes, there's some degree of instinct. On the other hand, I would also argue that there may have been some calculations done internally well before any event like this came up. You know, perhaps they had a code of personal values that they wanted to be able to help somebody who is in danger. Perhaps they were part of the armed services where that's really drilled into you. And you might not know how that's going to manifest. You would have no idea, for instance, that two years from now, you might be on the side of a subway track, see somebody fall down in there and reach up to grab them. But what looks like a split-second impulse to help someone can actually be founded on this kind of moral calculation that may have been going on for years or even decades before the heroic event that ends up getting focused on and highlighted in the papers. We, we know that very practical and basic factors can make a difference in whether or not someone intervenes, for instance, having had life-saving training, just feeling confident that you can do what needs to be done 
in a certain situation. I, I mean, you might want so much to help somebody who's bleeding at the side of the road and needs a tourniquet, but if you don't have the practical knowledge that's needed to create the tourniquet and stop the bleeding, you're not going to be able to do anything. So I think it's a combination of that moral impulse to want to be a helper with, and this is key, the practical knowledge to do what's needed to help that person. So often these heroic stories that you see in the press are the result of those two factors coming together at the right time. How much research has been done, if any, as to the ethical and social moorings of these people? Uh, How much is influenced by cold-hearted calculation? How much by religious indoctrination? Right. Well, as you know, the science of heroism and what makes a hero is still a fairly young field. So I'm not sure if we can say that there's a definitive answer. But I do think, from what we know so far, there are more commonalities between the split-second hero and the really deliberative kidney donor hero than you might expect. Um, We know that both of them probably have an extremely strong moral code. Um, For instance, Dave Hartsock, being a skydiving instructor, those instructors have sort of an ironclad moral code that whatever happens, they are going to put the welfare of their student ahead of their own welfare. And that is something that they will have been socialized into. They will have been deliberating for many, many years um, before the time may come that they need to use it. So in a way, the would-be kidney donor and the skydiving instructor that ends up um, getting celebrated as a hero later on are going through, I feel, a lot of the same types of moral deliberations. So uh, yeah, those two Hero categories seem very different in how they present, but I, I would argue that the calculations going on inside their heads are are more similar than different. One of the characteristics in some instances, not all, of the hero is to go against the crowd. What anecdotes or examples have you, have you encountered related to that, where somebody has befriended somebody against the crowd, against the mob? Right. Well, one wonderful experiment that... Um, Dr. Zimbardo, who taught at Stanford, liked to do uh, with his students, he called it be a deviant for a day. And he he would encourage them to do something that went completely outside their comfort zone just to see how it felt. So, you know, maybe they would wear a giant diaper. Maybe they would shave their head. Maybe they would, you know, just do something that made them appear or present completely differently. And the idea is that when you do something like that, you find out that it's not as scary or doesn't have as bad consequences as you might have thought it would, and that going through that experience is going to empower you to be willing to stand out when the time comes to do so. Um, You know, for instance, if you are a whistleblower hero like Aaron Brockovich when Pacific Gas and Electric introduced uh, toxic chemicals into the water supply. Somebody like that really has to be willing to stand out, and it helps to give yourself a little bit of practice at it on a smaller level beforehand to see, hey, you know, it's not the end of the world if people disagree with me or if I don't blend in with everybody else. When you have that comfort level with standing out, I, I think it's sort of hero training in that it prepares for the big ways that you're going to need to stand out to do something that's uh, socially heroic or or physically heroic. What are some of the fallacies, Elizabeth, associated with being a hero? Well, I think we often assume that heroes are born that way, that they are essentially different from the rest of us in a way that's difficult to quantify. And I think that idea gets further by the predominance of superheroes, these godlike figures in our culture. But the reality is, many heroism researchers will tell you, is that it's ordinary people who do heroic things. You know, a hero is an ordinary person who takes an extraordinary action, is uh, the way that Dr. Zimbardo likes to put it. And I I love that message because it, it reminds us that we all have it in us, which is something that At the outset, I think a lot of us are reluctant to believe. If you're just joining us, this is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Dr. Elizabeth Zoboda. And 
she has written two books, the first of which is What Makes a Hero, and the second is The Life Heroic, How to Unleash Your Most Amazing Self. How does one unleash their most amazing self? <laughs> yes, so The Life Heroic is my second book. It will be coming out in August, and it is my first book for kids, and I am very excited about it. It has a completely different tone than I take in What Makes a Hero, which is the book for adults. I, you know, I got to interview some amazing kid and teen heroes for this book, and it's really much more of an instruction manual. Like, if you are a kid who thinks that age is no object, who has a heroic mission that they want to carry out to make the world better, um, here are some of the ingredients that can go into that. Here are some of the ways that you can seek support. So it's a little bit self-helpy, I guess, in a way, but I hope in a way that's engaging for kids and gives them role models of the same age that they can look up to who are, again, ordinary kids who are doing extraordinary things. Of all your research, what was the example of heroism, besides the skydiving incident, that touched you the most? Wow. Well, I think if you remember the story of Jody Blanco, who I talk about in the book, when she was growing up, she was bullied in all these horrific ways. You know, people would stuff snow into her mouth out on the schoolyard. They would flush her things down the toilet. And for whatever reason, she just became a target throughout her school years. And while you might have expected her to accept those bullies' evaluations of her and kind of curl in onto herself, what she did instead was, well, first write a book about her experiences, which is called Please Stop Laughing at Me, essentially to help other kids being bullied, realize they're not alone. And she now runs a program called It's Not Just Joking Around. And she acts out real scenarios from her childhood and young adulthood to show kids what the real impact of being bullied is and to encourage people who are bullied that there's life beyond that and to encourage the people doing the bullying that you can make a different choice. You don't have to have this you know, awful negative impact on somebody else's life. So it's really a redemption uh, story that she had this awful situation and she turned it around. She sort of drew on her past pain to help others in this really profound way. And to me, that is just as heroic as what Dave Hartsock, the skydiver, did. There are many people listening who would like to be heroes and yet are perhaps walking around with misplaced shame and self-doubt what do you say to them? Right. Well, I go into this in quite a bit more detail in the book, but if I had to pick one piece of advice, I, I mean, we all feel confused at times. Um, we've all gone through difficult times in our lives, and I would encourage people that those difficulties can actually, if you approach them in the right way, they can become a source of strength. And, you know, somebody like Jody Blanco who we talked about before, she knew just how awful it was to be bullied, and that motivated her to create a program that was against bullying and has inspired thousands of kids all over the world. So if you can find a way to take some of the lessons that you've learned from the difficult things that you've gone through in life and use that to help alleviate other people's pain, I think you'll be well on the way to creating a heroic identity for yourself, and it's something that anyone can do. So the key thing is to diminish pain, whether it's somebody twisting themselves, falling, uh, descending from thousands of feet high so that they would take the impact for somebody, or somebody being pulled off the subway, or somebody just offering a cup of tea or, or a candy bar to somebody who's down. It's the same common denominator. It's trying to eliminate pain. Yes. Yes, I, I think that's very true. And a lot of times, of course, we're not going to be able to eliminate somebody's pain 100%. But sometimes the best thing that we can do is just be with them. And, you know, so, sometimes you don't need to offer a, a solution, but just, you know, by telling them that you believe in what they can do and just helping them whatever way is within your power without taking away their power, of course. You know, I wouldn't say it's heroic when... Um, parents intervene too much in kids' lives, the helicopter parent style, and try to do for them. So there's a significant difference between um, helping someone in a way that 
inspires them to stand on their own and be a self-sufficient person versus helping them in a way that uh, inadvertently communicates to them that they're not powerful enough to help themselves. So I, I think we have to be very careful to make that distinction in the ways that we help people. I fear that I'm becoming notorious for constantly saying one last question, but this is the last question. <laughs> Who do you think in general are the most unrecognized heroes? I think just the everyday heroes in our own lives. You know, oftentimes when heroism researchers will ask people, well, who is your hero? They will name somebody. It might be a family member or a friend who's certainly not somebody who's a public renown, but has done something that is genuinely sacrificial. I have people in my own family who have served as caregivers for older relatives when no one else was willing to do so. It's just these people that do these low-key heroic acts that are so necessary to the functioning of our society and that make innumerable people's lives better on a daily basis. So in a sense, indeed, we are our brother's keeper. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's been wonderful to have you here. Dr. Elizabeth Zaboda has been our guest. Her two books are entitled What Makes a Hero? And the second one, The Life Heroic to unleash your most amazing self, which will be coming out later, intended for a, a children's market, although adults can benefit from it. Thank you immensely for being a part of Watching America. And uh, we are delighted with the work that you are doing. And we look forward to hearing our future adventures. And please let us know and we will give you time. Thank you so much. It was wonderful to be here. This is Watching America with host Dr. Alan Campbell. It is a delight to have a gentleman with, well, quite a few achievements, uh, none of the least of which is he was a lead natural response control tactics instructor with the Corrections Institute, and he is a senior United States probation officer. He also served the agency as a training specialist. He worked specifically in a program in defensive tactics as an instructor and tactical response team leader as well uh, and firearm instructor. He is also a well-developed and accredited expert in martial arts and Korean martial arts at that. And what is his name, you're wondering? It is Ron Scheidt. And the reason I have Ron Scheidt on is because of a book that he has co-authored and co-edited with his colleague Brian Willis. The book is entitled, Am I That Man? And it refers to looking at men who have performed the role of hero or mentor uh, or guide in one's life. And for his particular circumstance, the person who fit that role was his brother, it was his brother who performed that role of being an encourager, a watchful, loving eye in his life, and a person who instilled goodwill about who Ron thought of himself to be and potential to become. Uh, and this was a brother who was 17 years his senior. Tragically and sadly, he lost his brother, but we are so delighted now that his brother's legacy lives on in Ron Scheidt in so many different ways, including the editing of this book. Ron, welcome to Watching America. It's delightful to have you here. Well, thank you, Alan. It's great to be with you as well. Let me just go right back. Who was the first male that you admired? Alan, that would be my brother, as you mentioned earlier. Uh, his name was Roger, but all of us in the family called him Bud. And he was the person that was everything to me. He was a brother, a father, a best friend, a confidant. Uh, he was everything uh, you would want in a person. He was a, uh, a very good and godly man. He was an athlete. He was a Marine. He was everything that I think every young boy aspires to be. And I was just very blessed that uh, this particular young boy had him in my life. Do you think he was conscious of that role, uh, or did it just come naturally to him? Well, I think both. I think he was very conscious of what I needed in my life, and I think the fact that he filled all those roles was very natural for him. That's just the person he was. But I think he was well aware of, of my needs and uh, uh, filling those roles in my life. I, I certainly believe he was. We do very often have a male figure, particularly boys, um, that stand out. For me, it was my brother-in-law, Richard, and so I can relate to 
having an older male in the family who is not designated legitimately as one's father but performs that role. When you lost your beloved brother, how did you handle that? Did you look for uh, additional heroes? I, I know that you did have a coach that was a, a great influence on your life. How did you handle your brother's death initially? Well, that's, that's a very interesting question. And, and, and as you read the, the book, I know, Alan, uh, my brother and, the, my, and Coach Hunsacker were very good friends. They were uh, athletes together on very many teams, and they were good friends. And my brother actually brought Coach Hunsacker into my life and those are the two men that I ended up writing about. Um, when my brother passed away, it was devastating. He left two young boys, and uh, he, he passed away the same way he lived, a man of uh, honor, uh, a man of character, a man of integrity. And he, he asked me, would I be that man in their lives? And I've certainly tried to fill that role. I'm sure I have fallen short many times along the way, but I've tried to live up to my brother's legacy the one thing that will always jump out at me, and I didn't even realize it until later when the book project came to fruition, was as my brother, as we were ending his funeral service that day, I was leading my mom out of the church, and there were over 800 people at his service. And I know this was probably just in my mind. It probably wasn't real. But as I stood up to face these people, I felt as if someone was saying to me, well, let's see what you are now without your brother. Let's see how you measure up now. And then years later, when the book project came to fruition, it was almost as if they were saying to me, are you that man? Let's see what you are now, minus your brother. Are you that man? Can you measure up without him by your side? And it was kind of a, just a real eerie feeling uh, that years later, the book, comes, the book comes out, and am I that man? It's a question that I probably asked myself many times over my life, and certainly probably the first time when we stood up to walk out of the church. Am I that man that, that he wanted me to be, that he molded me to be, that he you know, mentored me to be, that he invested in me to be? Am I really that man? Can any of us truly 100% be that man, or can we at least strive to be that man and recognize that perhaps for all of the good intentions, perhaps we're only actually maybe 80 or 90% of that man? Oh, I would agree, Alan. I think that... Uh, um, we just set these goals and we strive to be, and it's a daily struggle. Uh, you know, when, as I was writing the, the article that ended up being the, in this book, you know, I asked myself, am I the man? Am I the father? Am I the husband? Am I the coworker? Am I the friend? Am I the neighbor? And I jokingly say, I was batting a thousand. I failed on each and every one of them. So if we're honest with ourselves, it's, it's a process. It's not it's, it's something that we're never done with. It's, it's, it's a constant process. And I say when I teach martial arts, when the master stops being the student, they stop being the master. And I think that's so true about us as men, or as anyone, as we stop trying to improve and strive to be the best, then we fail. I'm just speaking as a father. I mean, I, I've tried to instill in my sons, my three sons, the best ideals I can. But then when I'm truly self-reflexive, I, I, I know my warts and, and I know my failings. Are you at peace with not being perfect? Uh, at, at peace with it, yes. Uh, pleased with it, probably no. Because you're right, we do all have shortcomings, and uh, it's a constant struggle. I, I, I know my brother and Coach Hunsacker probably struggled in the same way that I do, but it's it's just kind of refreshing that we recognize it and realize that it's a struggle, because if we didn't, I don't know that we would be in the fight on a day-to-day -day basis. Your colleague, Brian Willis, indicated that in his section of the book that he recognizes that it's, it's a day-to-day -day struggle and that one cannot, you know, think in terms of a broad brush of what you achieve in a lifetime, but each day that constructs that lifetime. In particular, he wrote, over the years, I have come to realize that a legacy is something you create every day and that it is something you live rather than something you have behind you when you die. Robert Louis Stevenson captured this philosophy when he said, do not judge each day by the harvest you reap, but by the seeds you plant. It seems to me that you, you, you and um, certainly Brian and the other, uh, I think, 18 or 31 authors in this book are, are very much invested in planting seeds. How do you plant a seed every day? Um, I, I think you never really know where people are in their life. And I think that uh, sometimes a smile 
a handshake, a greeting, an acknowledgement can just be the difference between a person sometimes literally living or dying. And we, we've all heard the story of the young boy that was going home from school on a Friday night, and he wasn't very popular, and he wasn't very well-liked. So one of the one of the cool kids came over and uh, joined him on the walk home and invited him for activities over the weekend. And later at graduation, the the boy admitted that he was on his way home that weekend to commit suicide. And if it would not have been for these kids involving him and bringing him into the cool group, he may have done just that. And I, I just don't think we ever truly realize the impact we have on others because we don't always understand where they are in their walk. And I think something very small to maybe you or I on a daily basis could be world-changing and very impactful on, on someone else. When you began to write this book and talk to men who were influenced by other men, uh, what surprised you the most? Was there anything that came up that you didn't anticipate that rose to the surface? You know, I, I, Alan, I, was, I really wasn't surprised that so many men had a, a same or similar story to mine, but I was surprised at how they, they came from a million different directions, but they all ended up basically in the same place. That was, that was really interesting to me, um, that whether it was a, an uncle, a father, a coach, a neighbor, whoever it was, they all ended up being that these people invested in them. It was intentional, as you said. Uh, it was unconditional love. It was intentional. It was purposeful. And uh, so I, I think that was the commonality. And the differences were that the, the person that did this was as varied as it could be. We're living in a time, and I, I do understand some of it, uh, and do have some degree of, of sympathy for, for those who are critical of masculinity in its distorted form. But we do have what I would hope is a healthy masculinity too. But that would seem in some circles to be under attack. Uh, there will be some who will misconstrue this particular program because in this segment we're talking about males basically influencing other males. Why have we arrived at a point where we almost have to apologize for wanting to be men, encouraging young men? Gosh, Alan, if I had that answer, I would I'd be very smart and very rich. I'm not really sure. I, I can say that when I came up with the title of this, Am I That Man?, I was really concerned because it seems so inclusive. And I can tell you from, from doing speaking engagements on this book and on this topic all over the country and from the book sales, some of the biggest fans of this topic and some of the biggest purchasers of the book have been females. Mm. They have purchased it for their sons, for their son-in-laws, for their husbands, for their grandsons. I think that uh, uh, I, I think maybe individuals think a lot about it, a lot differently about it than society does as a whole. And I'm not sure if that makes sense. But in talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, they get it. They understand the significance of this because I believe in a lot of times in the issues within the family unit, it starts with the male. They're, they're ignoring the family, they're, they're, they're working too hard, they don't really get it, get what the wife needs or the children need. And I think a lot of the families, or a lot of the problems in the families start with the male. And I think the females understand that and probably truly appreciate the fact that we're trying to work on it together. One of the things we do know, and we've had other guests on this program that have addressed the same issue, is the absence of fathers in the home. I mean, it's replete. We have it over and over and over. And I have found... Uh, that as a university professor, but just in other walks of life, I have had young men gravitate towards me. And I've become very conscious of the fact that they are looking for a father figure in me. Uh, and uh, I, I don't suggest that that's because of any exceptional qualities I have at all. But there is just this void and vacancy in so many young men's lives that they're looking for an attachment, something to someone, I should say, to use as a beacon for their own identity as as males and as men. And your book, again, is replete with examples of that. What do you think is the greatest misconception about this book? Well, it's interesting you say that because I've had people come to me and kind of put off when they read the title and they, without reading the book, they think it's that I'm bragging or the people that are in the book are bragging about how perfect they are. And nothing could be further from the truth. I have exposed a lot of vulnerability in there. Like I said, when I first started writing this, I asked myself, am I the best husband, the best father, the best this, the best that? 
And truthfully, I was failing at all of them. And when you talk about being uh, the, the, the father or the parental, the male figure being absent from the home, I don't think we can just stop at them being physically absent from the home. There are a lot of males, a lot of fathers that are physically present in the home, but not, they're not relationship engaged. They're not engaged at all. They're just there. They're either into sports, they're into their cell phone, they're into drinking or something else. And they may physically be there, but they're not emotionally engaged. They're not there with their family. They're not the best husband or the best father they can be. And I'm sure that I was that way as well a lot of the times. I would, on the way home from work, I had every intention of getting home and, you know, telling my sons how great they were, telling my wife how great they were, how lucky I was, how blessed I was, how much I loved them. And by the time I got home and fought traffic and fought everything else, it never occurred. And I think there's probably a lot of men that are in that same boat. They probably have the great intentions, but it just never occurs. And if not now, when? Ron, one of the things I admire about you is, uh, indeed, you in the course of this program already, you, you're expressing vulnerability and openness. Um, I like people that acknowledge their, their failings. Uh, I'm fortunate uh, that I'm not an alcoholic, but I have known many alcoholics, and um, I have attended alcoholic AA meetings, and people start out by acknowledging their weakness. And through the acknowledgement of the weakness, ironically, comes tremendous strength. Uh, also, is there comes a, an elimination of defensiveness because everyone's saying, hey, I'm really no better than you, and, and probably you're better than I am. How healthy is it for us as parents, as fathers, as male leaders, as mentors to openly and willingly show our weaknesses to those who are following us? Because I think it's incredibly important to do that. I think it's absolutely necessary to do that. I think vulnerability is one of the, the strengths in, in mentoring, in parenting, in coaching, in, uh, in teaching, whatever it is. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be honest with people because if you're not, especially kids can see right through it. I have a background in coaching as well. And, uh, you know, kids can see right through it if you're not being genuine and who you really are. You know, I always say being a great instructor is not about showing the students what you can do. It's about showing them what they can do. And you can substitute instructor for parent, for coach, for mentor, for role model. But it's not about showing them what, they, what you can do. It's about showing them what they can do. In the multiple examples that you have in the book of men writing about mentors in the life and the roles they've performed, which ones stick out the most for you? Well, the, I've been asked this question many times, and I've tried to be politically correct and say they're all equally as good, and they all impressed me equally. But there is one that really jumps out at me, and that is the, the article by Brian McKenna. Brian is a retired uh, lieutenant with Hazelwood, Missouri Police Department, and Hazelwood is a suburb of St. Louis, right by the St. Louis International Airport. And Brian writes about his father, Mr. McKenna, and what he says in there that was, my father wasn't what the world would call a hero. He just taught us right from wrong, you know, good from bad. Um, he respected the, uh, the law. He was a patriot. He'd served in the war. And he said he wasn't what the world would call a hero. But I always, Brian is a very close friend of mine, and I always disagree with him adamantly. I said, Brian, your father was exactly what we need. Your father was a hero. And I think if one article really resonates with me, it was that one. Because you don't have to be the professional athlete or the successful attorney. You just have to be there. And Mr. McKenna was certainly that. And he raised a fine, uh, a fine man and his son, Brian. Is it possible to have fictional characters as mentors? The reason I say this is uh, I'm old enough to remember, in rerun that is, the Andy Griffith show. And I, you know, had a father who was not stellar in, in many, many ways. I'll just leave it at that at the moment. And I always would watch, in England, Andy Taylor, the sheriff of Maybury. I wanted him to be my dad. And I think on some level, believe it or not, I, <laughs> although I don't go around with a fishing hook, you know, I, I kind of, I think, psychologically said, Andy Taylor, good man, be like Andy Taylor. Is that too awry or is that perfectly acceptable? Well, I hope it's acceptable, Alan, because I felt the exact same way and still do. I don't think you could watch uh, Mayberry, uh, a Mayberry show and not come away with a life lesson. And uh, I, I even say in my article, when I talk about Coach Bill Hunsacker, who was my, the other person that I wrote about, I say if you knew Andy Griffith or, uh, or 
Andy Taylor, then you know Coach Hunsacker. It, you could not talk to him without going away with a life lesson. So I, I agree. I wish we all lived in Mayberry, and I wish Andy was, our, was all of our dads. But uh, I, I would agree. I uh, love the show, love the man, and love what he stands for. Well, let's flip it, and let's talk about ladies for a moment, even though you don't address that directly in your book. Um, do you think, at least from your, let's say, precursory surface-level observation, which is all we can ask of you at this point because you haven't written a book on, on this particular topic, do you think there's a sufficient number of female mentors and models for young women? You know, I can't really say if there's a sufficient number. I don't think there's, there's probably never going to be a sufficient number of male or female mentors because it's such a, it's such a need. But I can say, Alan, as you're aware I wrote about two individuals in my article in the book. I wrote about my brother, and I wrote about Coach Hunsacker. If I would have written about a third person that had a tremendous influence on my life, uh, it would be my wife, Jerry. How did you meet her? Well, um, I was the high school and college basketball coach, Alan, way back when, and I was uh, running a basketball camp, and she brought our youngest son, Martin, into the basketball camp. And I tease about this, and she always laughs, but it was like everyone else in the whole gym was in black and white, and Jerry walked in in color. She just was radiant. So I walked over, found a way to strike up a conversation, introduced myself to her, and we dated a couple of times, and then saw her a year or so later, saw her another year or so later, and have been married now for going on 17 years. So uh, best, best recruit I ever had in coaching. <laughs> Before we go, if there is one takeaway that you would like everyone to just have resonating in them about your book, what would that be? Well, the, the, the basic premise of the whole philosophy of Am I That Man, How Heroes, Mentors, and Role Models Can Shape Your Life is this, honoring the past and investing in the future. I just felt there was no better way to thank my brother and Coach Huntsacker than to do for someone else what they did for me. I think that's the best we can do. When I do speaking engagements, I always ask people in the crowd, I'll say, I have one request of you. When we're done today, I want you to make a phone call. I don't know who you're calling, but you do. Reach out to that person that was such an influence on you. And if they don't know it, tell them. If they do know it, tell them again. But I think the, the basic premise of what I'm trying to preach, what Brian's trying to preach, and what we real all need to hear is honor the past and invest in the future. Ron Scheidt, author and co-editor of the book, Am I That Man? How Heroes, Role Models, and Mentors Can Shape Your Life. You have certainly been a blessing today to us, and for the momentary time that we've been here, a mentor to me. And I am so very, very grateful, and I wish you great blessings. Thank you, sir. Take care. Watching America is made possible by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, our producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording genius, editor, Gina Gamboni, executive producer, Chuck Dowd, chief of content, Heather Mazzoni, and CEO, Bert Schmidt. I am Watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.